Welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Old Man Morin, and joining me, as always, is our wonderful host and benefactor, the one and only Paul Sawyer from Warlord Games. Welcome, Paul, to your own podcast. Hi, Brad. Hello to everybody else. It's awesome having you back, man. So we're back for episode two. Yeah, yeah, lots to talk about. Um, the f- <laughs> I don't have a cold this time, so less sniffing. Apologies to everybody for the, <laughs> that in the first episode. Um, we we, but, we uh, dropped yeah, in. Yeah, we used the British paratroops. We dropped in the meds. We made sure that you were all set, and um, we tightened up the bolts on your chair. We are ready to rock and roll today. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we did have a request. A lot of people said after the first episode that they wanted more bolt action content, which was funny because it was entirely about bolt action, really. Um, And we also had, I think, even more people saying they wanted content for other game systems. So today, we are going to try to answer both uh, requests and make everyone happy, which never works, uh, by covering a wide span of games, including Bolt Action. Uh, But before we get that, uh, Paul and I decided that one of the things that we wanted to talk about this morning was the fact that we don't just talk about this stuff, we do this stuff. Uh, Paul, what have you been up to hobby-wise since we podcasted last? Um, To be honest with you, in terms of um, painting, a lot of my time has been spent with scale models. one of the things that uh, we got from uh, Italeri, who we, we partner up with, is mm-hmm. uh, one or two kits for Christmas. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I've been uh, putting together a short Sterling Bomber and a Focker Wolf 189 uh, Owl or Yoohoo. Very nice. Um, go, go, I, just like, I like to dabble with stuff that I you know, grew up with uh, for so many years. But on the, uh, on the gaming front, um, yeah, it's, it's a wide variety. I don't tend to stick to one thing at any one time. So if I look across at my painting table, I've got, uh, what have I got there? I've got our characters for bolt action, um, uh, British Airborne. So mm-hmm. uh, I've got Roy Urquhart, um, Johnny Frost and Digby Totham Water with his, um, uh, with his brolly. Nice. So they're, they're, they're not far off being finished. Uh, they'll go to almost my growing uh, British Airborne army. Um, I've got my persistent project, which is my America War of Independence Army, which is based on the uh, uh, British at uh, Battle for Guildford Courthouse. Uh, I think I'm, yeah, I'm down now to uh, one more unit of guards and the character figures, and I can call it done. As much as a, a <laughs> an army can ever be done. So again, you are playing the bad guys in that, right? Oh, how dare you, sir! <laughs> how dare you! <laughs> Sorry, God, I think that might be a reoccurring theme on this podcast. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, uh, and then the other thing I've got on there, so we'll look. Uh, oh, some uh, some Beastmen. I'm, I'm rebuilding uh, a project I did when I was uh, working at Games Workshop, building a Beastmen army. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so a, a wide variety, dabbling as I go. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think. How about you? What are you up to? Oh well, I also suffer from a little of the hobby ADHD, but uh, I've I've thankfully had something that has helped me to focus. Um, one of the things that I've I've learned over the many years of uh, hobbying is events and tournaments really do help me to focus all of my efforts towards a particular project. And I think I mentioned on the last episode that I was completing a a very themed 
uh, bolt action army around the Auto Sahariana in uh, the desert in Italy. So these are the guys who were sort of the Italian version of the LRDG. Um, and Warlord makes some beautiful trucks that uh, basically was how these guys got around. I believe it was the AS, oh God, no, uh, 42, uh, which was. which just looked like giant moon buggies. Um, they look like <laughs> buckets with giant wheels, and they have a fifth wheel, not on the back, mounted smack dab on the front with uh, pintle mounts you know, for MMGs on three different points on the model. Um, they're just awesome. And so I built an army around those um, that was that had five of those particular vehicles um, and had some Italians um, in basic trucks uh, and then just ran around the table and made mischief uh, and had a lovely time playing it. Um, one best themed army at the event. Uh, oh, congrats. Oh, thank you. I, I was really pleased. I wasn't expecting to necessarily win a game because the event I was going to had a theme. It was called Operation Heavy, and people were encouraged. They bumped up the points to 1,350 points because they wanted people to um, take a heavy tank. So everyone was encouraged to bring like a Tiger or a Panther or a Pershing or something like that. And of course, the, the heaviest vehicle I had in my army was a soft skin. So um, I was pleasantly surprised to take one win, one draw, and one loss. Um, and, you know, I'll take that and had a wonderful time. And that really got my juices flowing. And then a couple weeks after that, I ran my own event, um, an event called Operation Wolf. Um, now that had... I think that was the largest event Melbourne's had to date. Uh, we had 26 players register. Two players had to drop on the morning of. So we ended up with 24 playing players. Uh, we had a nice mix of nations. We had, of course, all the big nations. But we also had a partisan army. We had a Polish army. And we had a, a one of the brand new um, warlord Australian armies. And it was just, it was just a lot of fun. Um, we encouraged new players for that event. So it was 900 points um, because we wanted new players to have an easy access point. And we had eight players who had never played in a bolt action event before. Um, many of them were veterans from other game systems that I knew from, um, from my Warhammer days. And yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. But I ended up spending weeks and weeks painting terrain for that um, because... <laughs> People, I, I sold out of the event twice, and I've actually had to put a hard cap on the number of players because I ran out of terrain and tabletops. Um, <laughs> but it got to the point where I went, ooh, that last table's looking a bit grim. Uh, so I bought six huts um, and then spent the time to cut tea towels down and PVA them down on the roof and make sure that it looked thatched and painting the lot. And I got in a couple of sets of the Warlord plastic walls um, to go on that table as well and was hammering those out. And in the end, I now have another table worth of terrain, which is wonderful. But uh, it, I was painting terrain until, you know, 11 o'clock the night of. Uh, but what that means is I got to, because there was an even number of players, I didn't have to play, which I know some TOs, uh, tournament organizers don't really enjoy. Um, they like to play. I, with that many players was very pleased that I didn't have to. It meant that I could really focus on making sure that data was right, that I could answer player questions and that everything was sorted out. Um, and it, it, it ran beautifully, but because I was able to sort of jump from, tabletop to tabletop, uh, I got to really, in, 
really watch a lot of really close, tight games. Um, and it really got my juices going about listing and army building. And so I, I may have now, I may be the proud owner of, I think, 85 uh, Soviet naval troops made by your fine company. And I'm probably going to end up with a few more. Uh, and I think that might be my army for the beginning of 2019. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some things that distract me before then. Um, I have a passion for uh, Manchuria and uh, basically Japanese forces in China, circa 1937. So I have a massive great coat army um, using the warlord plastics that we talked about on the last episode. Uh, but I've really been looking at because it's such a niche army, um, I know a lot of people tend to play Japanese as the unwashed masses, you know, coming out of the mm-hmm. jungles with spear fighters or inexperienced troops. Well, that isn't the, those aren't the soldiers that we're fighting then. Those were regular battle-hardened, maybe not veteran, in some cases veteran, soldiers. So I'm looking at creating a force that's entirely regular riflemen. Um, they had some LMGs, but not tons. They had almost no SMGs. Suicide AT never happened in that force because they weren't losing. They had nothing to lose. They were, the, it, they were advantaged. So why would guys kill themselves? So mm-hmm. they didn't have that. And so a lot of the tropes of what you'd expect in a Japanese army in bolt action I'm not using. And so it, it is really interesting to to list around that. So before I get to the Soviet sailors, long story short, I've been uh I've been painting guns um as in artillery pieces um and different tanks to add to that particular army so that uh, I can start putting it on the table because though it's basically finished, um there are those little things that need doing. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. You mentioned um, uh, one of the one of the uh, armies you had in your tournament was a partisan army. I've always been very intrigued by them. Uh, how did that get on? Uh, it well, the player who ran it, uh, Greg, is an old school war gamer and has been playing in Melbourne bolt action events since I literally started running them. So he did quite well with them. I think he maybe came fifth or sixth um, just off the podium. Ooh, good effort. Yeah. Well, he, he's hard to beat. So, it, I mean, he's won quite a few events, um, both with his partisans and with a, ver- a variety of his other armies. He usually runs Soviets um, and occasionally Germans. Um, but I ran partisans um, for years. I was known as the partisan player. Um, as we used to joke on a podcast, the Party Boys, and I ran, ironically, a uh, a war lo- uh, sorry Warsaw uprising partisan army um, that I'd bought, sort of half painted from a gentleman in Europe, uh, and added to. So well before Warlord had the list, um, the actual Warsaw uprising list, I should say, in the new uh, Berlin book, I was running it out of the. Battles, oh, sorry, Armies of France book, uh, and I, mm-hmm. I loved that list. It was so wonderful. Um, and yeah, I, I eventually sold it, not because I got frustrated with the army, but because it was my crutch and I took it to every event, um, and I wanted to play something else. Uh, to this day, I regret it a little bit, but um, because I got rid of my the old crutch partisan army, I now am up to 10 painted bolt-action armies. So... <laughs> Uh, I must admit, the partisans are something that do, do appeal, and it's funny you should mention the Warsaw Uprising because that that'd be one that uh, stands out. Mm. You know, just the, the 
using lots of the German kit and uh, yeah. obviously got the uh, uh, Kubus armored car and mm-hmm. uh, uh, captured uh, other captured equipment, but also with that very distinct red and white uh, armband. Yes. Um, so, yes, I, I must have, I've got that in the back of my mind, too, at some point. Oh, it's great. And plus, you can paint the little, I painted the little white eagles on the front of the German helmets. Um, yep. And it really helped because oftentimes with, um, when you're trying to source models for partisans, I mean, you guys make quite a few um, models in civilian clothes, uh, but sometimes maybe a hat makes it hard to match. Uh, but what was yeah. great is they used a lot of looted German gear that they grabbed, um, b- both as weapons and equipment. And some of that equipment, of course, were helmets. And so by snipping, you know, inappropriate had- heads off that necessarily didn't match, um, because, you know, certain clothing wouldn't be worn in Warsaw at that time. But if you put a German head on that model, all of a sudden it matched. And then, of course, you just paint the little eagle on the front and you're all set. So well, you've also got the uh, yeah, SS smocks you often see them wearing as well. So basing definitely. it off, maybe maybe our plastic SS and, and kit bashing some of those. Absolutely, uh, because that would re- those really would match. Um, and you could, and then you really have that neat hobby opportunity if you're really going for, you know, some some you know, stretch your legs and maybe get someone to really pay attention. Besides those really nice armbands and those eagles, just painting that P dot camouflage um, or yeah. whatever camouflage on there. That's, that's a great hobby opportunity. So it's, it's really one of those projects that, especially since if you think about the, the battle zone that they fought on uh, and there's quite a few great books, Osprey does a great book about that, that I have Um you can really see the background and the rubble and the urban terrain. Just the basing for that project is it's sensational. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, I'm sure we can talk bolt action all day long, but we did say we were going to start talking about some other stuff. Now, as an old school Whovian, I know a couple of people have asked, <laughs> and I definitely want to start talking about Exterminate. So we have some new Doctor Who stuff coming down the pipe. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, it's a really exciting time for um, our, our official Doctor Who uh, license. Uh, you mentioned the the Exterminate game, which of, of course is the the cornerstone of what we're we're producing. Mm. Uh, but we're also producing a, a a lot of stuff that appeals to collectors, <clears throat> people that maybe don't war game but just love uh, merchandise or or miniatures and, and just want to you know, display them. So we had. Uh, one of our first releases was the Cybermen Collector set, Nightmares in Silver, mm. which covered 10 different iterations of the Cybermen over a 50-year period. So cool. Uh, and we're about to release something not too dissimilar, but I Am the Master, which uh, yeah. will cover uh, the Master from uh, his first inception, Roger Delgado. It'll go through his uh, emaciated form, uh, in the Deadly Assassin storyline mm-hmm. uh, before morphing into Anthony Ainley. Um, uh, and then we have uh, the John Sim uh, version uh, in his hoodie, mm-hmm. his bleached white hair. Yeah. And fi- finally Missy uh, with her cyber controller in hand. So that, that'll, that'll appeal a lot to uh, anybody who loves Doctor Who, but obviously one of the things that we're, we're doing at the moment is we're adding in um, lots of cards um, to each of the new packs so that you can field all these models in your games of exterminators, agents or factions. Um, 
we're just about we're just going through um, uh, a process at the moment of bringing out all the cards for the old, I say old, not old, the current uh, mm. releases. Uh, so anybody who's bought um, Zygons in the past, the Jadoon, uh, the the 10th Doctor, the 12th Doctor, mm-hmm. all the packs that we released before Exterminate, uh, will be able to get their hands on either a downloadable PDF for free or uh, we'll also make the the card decks available for um, anybody who already has the models on our web store, uh, but also uh, re-engineering each of the sets so that anybody who buys them anew um, will have those cards in them. So a lot more playability for Doctor Who. Nice. Um, we've, we've done a lot. Uh, we've had a lot of great releases recently. Um, uh, we've you know, brought out the Ice Warriors and another pack with the Empress of Mars, Iraxa, and her a manservant Friday, if you can call him that. Um, so that adds a, another uh, very identifiable uh, faction to Games of Exterminate. And uh, we're just at the moment starting to um, uh, drop a few hints and previews for another faction we've got going uh, through at the moment. So, Paul, one of the things that a lot of people have asked me about doc- the Doctor Who game is, it, uh, so Doctor so a lot of the games that Warlord makes are war games, and you typically have soldiers fighting over a particular uh, battlefield in a particular era. Well, the Doctor's notoriously uh, pacifist. So I would assume then, and what a lot of people have asked, and I actually don't know the answer to this, is that the the, the Doctor Who game is very objective-based. I mean, clearly you're not going for kill points. Uh to a degree, you are. Um, the, the game itself is um, based fundamentally about specific factions. Mm. So in the core game, we've got plastic Time War Daleks and we've got mm-hmm. plastic Cybermen. Um, and, and it's those two factions facing off. So you are actually oh, wow. yeah, really, they're... really playing martial entities against each other. Mm. Uh, what you can do uh so there are different ways of playing the uh, the games that straight um yeah faction on faction there's more adventure base which is you say objectives uh and then there's also uh introducing the doctor and whilst the doctor and his companions aren't fighty for want of a better word mm-hmm. um they have rules that allow them to um uh, manipulate um different situations um each companion and each um, iteration of the Doctor will have its own special abilities. And, of course, they won't have a machine gun or a, a bazooka. Mm. But they can have significant impact on games with, with that level of manipulation and, and the skills that they bring. But, you know, you can, you can choose to play Exterminate in, in one of those three ways, as, as you really want to do at the time. It, it, what we're finding is people are, are picking a couple of factions, building up those armies, um, and then also collecting um, their favourite doctors and companions. Uh, you can bring different agents into the mix, so you, you can field um, the, uh, the Jadoon um, and one or two of the other uh, packs that we've we've released as uh, an additional mm. uh, supplement to your force. So it's not just going to be all Ice Warriors, it's not going to be all Santaras, it's not going to be all Daleks, although you can play it that way, yeah. just to get a little bit more granularity into the game. Nice. Oh, that's great. Um, I was, yeah. One of the things I, I look at when I'm looking at a game is 
because I like to plan a nice pretty table, I look at the table and think, oh, do I have terrain that kind of matches this game? Could I have something that works or would I have to go out and buy a new table of terrain? And sometimes because I'm an apartment dweller, you just look at it and say, that would just be too, I, I just can't get that much terrain, <laughs> um, which is funny because I have so many tables of terrain as it is. But one of the great things about Doctor Who is because of the way it was filmed, um, and it is currently filmed in the UK mostly, uh, having been to the Doctor Who world in Cardiff and you know been around, especially because they do a lot of the filming in that area, I look at my terrain box, I look at that area and think, you know what? I have, an, I have the perfect terrain for this game. Um, so yeah, it is a well, great you've also game got for that. Whole of, the whole of space and time to go at. I mean, you, exactly. it, it, it's stuff happening on spaceships. It's happening in you know uh, on the surface of Mars, uh, mm-hmm. ice planets. So you can pretty much play with any terrain you could possibly care to mention. Exactly. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, okay. We can probably talk Doctor Who as well all day, but I know that we have something exciting for Shield Wall. So uh, why don't you tell us about that? Because there's quite a lot going on there. Yeah, uh, well, Shield Wall is our latest Hail Caesar expansion, a supplement written by uh, somebody who uh, many um, Warlord fans will be familiar with, John Lambshead. Mm. Uh, he's penned a number of um, books for us in the past, uh, Operation Sea Lion, mm-hmm. um, um, Operation Gigant, the, the add-on to that, uh, to name but two. Uh, and Shield Wall is the first of our Dark Age sagas, uh, it focuses on the uh, um, the wars in Britain, uh, so it doesn't cover anywhere outside of the British Isles. Not mm-hmm. that there is anywhere outside the British Isles, of course. <laughs> uh, and, and it and it's really from kind of 400 AD, the the late Roman Republic, right through to uh, 1066. But it doesn't include 1066 because that's going to be covered in another supplement which we've asked John to write which really covers the Norman conquest. Mm. And that'll be the, the, the adjunct to this. Uh, so this, this focuses on what many call um, the age of Arthur and all Arthurians. So, um, you know, I've just got the book in front of me here, flicking through it. Um, you've got um, you know, sub, sub-Roman war bands. Um, so Limitano, um, Saxons, obviously, the Romano-British. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, some of the other uh, elements that would be based on war bands, so uh, Picts, Irish, uh, and Welsh. Uh, and what John always likes to do with his um, with his books is to just put something else um, added value on top of what you'd you'd expect. So you'd expect army lists, uh, you'd expect scenarios, you'd expect a potted history and some interesting background. Um, uh, and John's got trumps with this particular book because he's put two things in. Firstly, he's put a campaign system in. Oh, nice. So um, that runs from um, the Battle of Baden Hill, which many of you will be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that runs through 13 different scenarios, uh, ending in the Battle of Brandenburg. So it's a linked campaign system. Um, should give a lot, lots of flavor there. But one of the most exciting things we feel is um, the introduction of war bands. So where Hail Caesar is uh, a massed battle army with lots of units of you know, ranked-up troops, mm. uh, an absolute spectacle on the tabletop. Obviously, with not all um, battles were fought that way, and, and there are some periods in history where um, it would be less common 
Um, and, and this is a, a classic example of it. So um, really this, this period um, covered by the war bands is that um, um, 400, 600 AD, um, where you're talking about a handful of models, skirmish-based, um, much looser formations, because you, you're not talking about a, a national standing army at this point. You're mm. talking about a local lord's vassals. Um, and it's developed from a, a system uh, written by another name that um, many X Games Workshop um, fans will be familiar with, uh, Nigel Stillman, mm. who's written as a book that we'll be releasing in the future covering the Bronze Age. Oh, nice. That's another another um, um, period that lends itself to this kind of warfare. So now, now you've got two different ways of playing here, Caesar. You've got the, the, the smaller scale warbands, which is great for playing uh, games while you build your army up, when you, yes, as you're starting to um, develop units, um, without having to sit there painting, 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 and not mm-hmm. playing. Um, and then, obviously, as you as you build up your forces, move into Hail Caesar proper. You have this magnificent ranked-up um, armies, with the standards flying and yeah. cavalry all over the place. Yeah, fun. and it's a it's a beautiful book. So uh, th- there's lots of, lots to be said there, uh, and, and it ties in beautifully with. Uh, our recent purchase of Saxon miniatures from Colin Patton, mm. um, who, who actually sculpted a lot of the original Griffin Beast uh, line. Um, so in that uh, range, which we've been making available uh, hand over fist in the last few weeks, uh, obviously you've got the, the, the classic staples, Saxons and Vikings, mm-hmm. uh, Normans. Uh, we've got a, a good chunk of a, an Age of Arthur range with the, the Romano-British and the... Uh, uh, the early Saxons, uh, and then uh, a little left field. We've got the start of an El Cid range for the Reconquista. So uh, we've got Castilians um, and Ben um, Black Guard, which uh, I think they're they're coming out in the next couple of weeks. But it doesn't end there because one of the things that we were very very keen on from from day one of um, purchasing that company was that it wasn't just going to be a case of re-release and walk away. We try where possible um, to fulfil our covenant to to all our customers that when we start an army, we don't leave it there. We carry on releasing, mm. and uh, yeah, some armies get more than others, but we we do try our best to cover as much as possible. And uh, we've already um, commissioned Colin to produce some new skulls, which he's he's delivered. So we've got uh, mounted characters for the Normans coming through. So obviously William the First and, and Bishop Odo and his big clobbering stick. Um, and then we've got more releases for the, uh, the the Saxons and the Vikings. So uh, keep an eye keep an eye out for those. I think we've I put up some um, previews on our Facebook page. Yes. If you haven't seen them, check, check that out. Um, so yeah, lots more going on there. Well, that's great. Um, so just to be clear, though, I, I made a few notes while you were talking um, with Hail Caesar. I mean, traditionally, Hail Caesar is in a, is in a different setting, of course, than um, Shield Wall. But the rules in Shield Wall for smaller scale games as you build up your forces, that's backward compatible with the rest of the Hail Caesar range, right? Well, Hail Caesar covers uh, you know, the biblical period right through to medieval. 
Oh, so okay. although it's called Hail Caesar, um, Got it. It, it, it covers everything, but it is about mass battles. It's about huge armies clashing with huge armies. Um, whereas what, what's uh, been introduced here uh, on top of that is the opportunity to play with a smaller number of models. Mm. Maybe that is less about your pitch battle and more about you know raiding a local uh village or a clash with a, an enemy patrol that kind of level uh and it fits perfectly with as i said building up your force mm. playing some games uh, and as you said yourself with your tournament you get excited about excited about playing and organizing a tournament mm-hmm. get a little more painting done and it's a, a perpetual cycle it is and I only recently become aware, and I don't know how I missed this, as a lover, I grew up in Japan, and so I love samurai anything, really. Uh, and I just recently became aware that you guys put out rules for sa- samurai armies in Hail Caesar. And so I'm looking at that going, ooh, ooh, now I can take smaller scale? Because Test of Honor is wonderful for really small, and then scale it up again and then scale it up again and it just suddenly makes my jet ja- my giant pile of japanese models look better and better and better <laughs> yeah i mean test test of honor is uh is its own thing uh it, it's not really designed to be um like the majority of the the, the classic war games that that warlord right. um produces um it's been very 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 popular mm. uh, as it is uh, it fills its own niche but obviously we have, we have all these plastic miniatures uh, we've been asked a lot about yeah when are you going to release them for uh, for pike and shot uh, and um, you know it was always in our minds to do that mm. um, and it kind of fell into our lap that a, uh, a chap uh, in America I believe um, called Tim, Tim Green had written um, some fan rules for using Sammy Ryan mm. in Pike and Shot. Oh, sorry, it's Pike and Shot, not Shield. Uh, Hail yeah. Caesar. Sorry, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's a cl- it's a close one. It's a close yeah. one. I I even have uh, it written down in front of me, and I just, <laughs> sorry, one of those days. Coffee hasn't sunk in yet. Um, and um, so you know, we 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 took the decision that we publish the uh, the army list in a uh, a free booklet and pop that in the starter army. So anybody start, starting out with uh, samurai or wanting to add to it, you know, get loads of plastic mm. samurai, samurai cavalry, loads of Ashigaru Yari, loads of Ashigaru with missile troops. Mm. And you get a free booklet um, which explains how you can field these in Pike and Shot. That's right. Well, so... With... As we're talking about Pike and Shot... Yes, right? go uh, ahead, please. Pike and Shot and Samurai, uh, let's move straight on to Test of Honor. Yes. Uh one of the things that uh, you may have seen in the last day or two is we've uh, uh, opened pre-orders for um, our latest uh, miniatures. Uh, and this is the first of uh, four campaign packs. And the campaign packs are designed to be run um, over each of the, the seasons. So obviously we've got um, spring, summer, uh, autumn and winter. Yes, I got that right. Well done, me. <laughs> uh, the, first, the first pack... Um, includes a, a booklet with scenarios, campaign details, and rules for the Sohai mm. uh, warrior monks. Uh, and I have to say, uh, the, the models look absolutely glorious, and they've gone down an absolute storm. So, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing lots of those on the tabletop soon. Yeah, they're stunning. Uh, and, and 
uh, and we're already starting to plan through the the next um, campaign patch, which will include the the Onibugeisha. Um, oh. And I will try this of Asakura. That's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, female warriors, effectively. Mm. Uh, so yeah, archers and on with Naginata, hero figures. Uh, and again, um, they're looking fantastic so far, and I hope to be previewing those before too long as well. So still, still lots of uh, lots of support for testimonies to come. Yeah, I, I was so I ordered the because I'm a, I guess a terrible person. Um, I I bought into Test of Honor and I kept putting off putting together my models. And then you came out with the, I believe it's called the temp, uh, it's the Temple Assault, and it is it's ninjas. Yeah. And so I I bought the ninja pack, um, with all of the extra rules and the missions, and I was blown away with all the extra stuff that came with it. Um, to play, uh, and then. Was that sort of the, the the template that you're using with these books? So th- those were sort of the oh. early test runs before you got into the larger campaign packs, because the, kind of it's a yeah. similar similar number of models. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's seven figures. The ninjas were seven mm. figures, but um, Andy Hobday and, and Graham Davy, the authors of um, Test of Honor mm. and the system, uh, were very keen to to run a campaign system. Mm. Uh, I wanted to base it over the the seasons, which um, is a thing in that period. It is. So um, yeah, uh, we we worked out what the uh, what the releases would be alongside those, and obviously we're we're working alongside our, our chums at Sarissa Precision mm-hmm. to produce lots of uh, MDF terrain. So the Seihei Warriors, they yeah they, they've got the uh, the temple and a shrine, uh, which is kind of really important to the campaign as a whole uh, and then going forward each of the miniature boxes will not only have the campaign booklet inside but will also be uh, sat alongside some more of uh, this wonderful terrain that Sarissa are providing that's awesome i already have a table of samurai terrain and when i saw the the temple that went with the monks i just went yep that that pack's coming home with me at some point it, <laughs> and it fit, it would fit perfectly because i have um my my table is built around a shinto shrine um i really wanted that to happen and then all of a sudden more shrine buildings and went yes please give me that so i am looking <laughs> i'm eagerly awaiting the release of that particular pack um which is Good. weird because i have yet to actually play test of honor which is you know a great disappointment to myself well, I've you know been busy <laughs> organizing bolt action events, but uh, it is one of the things that I'm hoping to uh, remedy in the next uh, well before the next episode um, is to actually get to play and then of course play with those models on that table and just oh it it just having assembled and painted a, most of that terrain it's just glorious. So um, yeah, if you haven't checked this out, guys, it, it's well worth a look. The models, especially the new metal ones, are astoundingly good, um, and the the terrain just it it just it creates a beautiful backdrop to play on. It's just wonderful. So yeah, and you can see how the rules were sort of written with the campaign system in mind, um, and so having that added on is just bonus. Yeah, great, great stuff. So all right. We've had people asking. Let's shall we talk about bolt action? I know there's other things to oh, talk if, about if as well. We must. If we must, if we must, yeah, obviously, yeah. We've um, we got to that point where we can't put it off any longer. Nope. Um, I know you were talking to me before we uh, mm-hmm. we came on air 
about um, the, the latest announcement we had, which is our plastic winter Germans, um, which has gone <laughs> really, really seems to hit the mark. So these are um, a usual standard of uh, highly detailed, uh, dynamic plastic um, Germans. But the thing that stands out is they're all wearing grey coats. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so this will be good for the Eastern Front. It'll be good for um, the um, cold mountains of Italy. It'll just be good for cold weather. Not doesn't necessarily have to be you know, knee-deep in snow. Exactly. Uh, you see them you know, fighting in the Curlin Pocket. You see them um, you know, the, uh, towards the end of the, uh, the France campaign. And one of the things that um, Wojtek, who sculpted these um, miniatures, has cleverly done, is the way he's sculpted the boots um, allows you to paint them either um, as the classic uh, leather jack boots for, for early and mid-war, or because of the way the creases are, um, are designed, you can actually paint those as gaiters. Oh, so you really? Actually, it fits perfectly for early and late. Uh, we've made sure that one of the things that uh, we're very keen on is that this is a universal set. If you're playing Germans and you want great coats, you'll have it. Um, it's got the MG34 in for the early war. It's got the MG42 in for the late war. Obviously, you can you know, take the early war stuff and through. Mm. Uh, and we've made sure that all the relevant um, uh, kit is in there for, for, for both periods. So... Uh, lots of rifles and uh, SMGs for early war, but obviously introducing the STG-44 assault rifles for, for later war, mm-hmm. Panzerfausts, uh, and you know, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen them, uh, get over to the Warlord site or check out our uh, social media. Um, we've got the painted models up, and they, they look fantastic, uh, really, really do. And uh, so they've got they actually caused quite a stir. Well, if if I may, as someone who spent quite a lot of time working with your Soviets in gray coats, um, one of the great things about Warlord Plastics is they're interchangeable. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, my Japanese army is is made using the Soviet gray coat models. So I'm looking forward to this kit so I can make more Japanese gray coat models. Um, because, you know, just by switching around some heads and some arms and some hands even, depending on the, the, the way the models are put together, you can really, you know, get around and do some interesting things. Um, I have switched some boots occasionally. I am that guy. I'm like, oh, gators need to have that. Um, but what's interesting with this is because you have so many great German kits already, um, if you want to add even more variety to your great coat german army if you're looking at these models all you really have to do is swap out a few of the heads um, because germ a german helmet's a german helmet is a german helmet um likewise some of the arms if you want more assault rifles well the grenadiers box has that and some of those sleeves are big enough that they would look like they would be on great coat models um having used some of them on my japanese great coats and the way that the models interchange, you can really do a lot with this kit. And it adds really nicely to the wonderful metal range of uh, winter Germans you guys have been putting out bit by bit that um, the lovely and talented Andy Singleton is painting up an extra uh, 15 guys to add to my existing winter German army right now uh, because 
they're just wonderful. And now I'm thinking, do I need to send Andy more great coats to add to that army? But we both know the answer to that. Yeah. Oh. Go on, give in. Yeah, the dark side's calling. Ooh. <laughs> do I need another yeah, German it, army? Hmm. It, it's uh, it's a good point. Uh, well made that what, when we started down the route with the bolt action plastics, we wanted them to be heavily interchangeable. Mm. Um, so even to the point where um, you could mix and match across different nationalities mm. quite easily with a lot of the arms, because the vast majority of the kits will have an arm waving, an arm pointing, an arm carrying something. Exactly, uh, And it's you know not beyond the, uh, the will of most um, gamers to, to make those very minor conversions. Mm. I think there's only... Yeah, only one or two kits that you'd really struggle with. And you know, I'm thinking about the the smocks on the recent Waffen SS would probably preclude them from being used across yeah. most options. Um, but but across the board, there's, there's a lot of mix and match to be done there. And, and as we we all know from seeing uh, you know newsreels and um, many 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 photographs, is your average soldier. Uh, is dressed in a variety of different ways mm. and as, as war gamers we we like to have that um that very very uniform look everybody dressed in exactly the same way the same unit same tunic mm-hmm. um same boots same webbing but reality was they just used whatever they could to get their hands on whatever they were issued with and that often inv- involved you know captured kit and mm. uh, you often see um uh, pictures of uh, Falchion Jaeger with a bread and gun, and exactly. um, yeah, the, the the British were quite happily to give up their Sten gun for a, an MP40 Schmeiser. Mm-hmm. There's lots lots of that going on, and I I, I love to see it when people um, take that plunge uh, and kind of follow history rather than you know just going straight straight down the line. My the so the army that. Andy is adding models to my late war German is made up from models from a huge number of your metal kits um, Mm -hmm. with a few plastic models thrown in. But because the German army, particularly in the late war, and that's my late war German army, um, they, they, they kept rolling out different uniforms and different bits of equipment and different, um, you know, different smocks, different coats, different everything it's a mess of models of that, yep, you know, absolutely. but once they're painted in a similar, um, I mean, there is variation of colors within the models, depending on the smocks and the, the jumpers and whatever. But once Andy painted them in his style across the army, it looks like a uniform force, even though yeah. uni- uniformity is not what that force represents, but it's historically accurate. And if anyone's going to tell me that my German uniform isn't accurate, it's Andy. And he went, yep, no, this is good. And I just went, yep, thank you. Perfect. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, even the, even the colors um you can have a, a uniform looking oddly enough uniform mm. but it's the yeah. uh, the, the color of the field gray uh we visited um uh, our friends at Italeri mm. a couple of years ago and uh, one of the guys there roberto has an immense collection of um uniforms uh, and just opening up his wardrobe and seeing row after row after row of um, feel great, and, and it's such a wide variety of colours, and you can easily see that within 
a unit, you could easily have you know, half a dozen different colours of field grey, the same mm. way as for um, the German armour, uh, Dunkelgelb. There wasn't just one type of Dunkelgelb. Exactly. It was a, a theme. There were many different ways of uh, approaching it. Um, uh, and I think it's those little uh, additional details that really make armies come to life. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, you can easily see... Um, anybody who's got a, a last levy force for the fall of Berlin, you know, adding in some of the plastics there uh, would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, look, I could not have said that better myself. Um, now, okay, we've talked German plastics for quite a while. There's, Is there anything else you would like to talk as far as bolt action before I try and butcher the next agenda item's pronunciation? Um <laughs> Look, um, there is a, of course, we did mention in the last episode, for those who are particularly interested, I believe the next Bolt Action book is a desert book, which I cannot wait for. Um, But what else is in the pipes? Anything that we should talk about? Or are we we keeping our cards close to the vest? No, no. Well, I mean, obviously, I alluded in the last episode that we're we're working on um, a book covering uh, the Western Desert, particularly North Africa. and that we'll be supporting it with um, plastic models as well as new vehicles, as well as new metals. Um, it's, a, it's a particular theatre that uh, is very dear to my heart, mm. uh, but it's also uh, one of the big gaps in our bolt action offering. Uh, we've dabbled with it um, recently, but now we're going all guns blazing, so I expect a lot of stuff for uh, Africa Corps, for the Italians, for the Commonwealth, um, coming through, and uh, so that won't just be for uh, the, the classic British desert rats. Uh, we fully expect to be doing more stuff for um, uh, the Indians, for the Aussies, the uh, yeah, the, the Anzacs. Um, there's a lot to go out there, and I think it's a gift that could be giving for quite some time. That's awesome. Yes, it's it's been called the Gentleman's War, and I, yeah, as some as someone who has three desert armies and two tables of terrain for the desert, I'm eagerly anticipating that particular <laughs> book. Um, I have my Commonwealth are Indians. Um, I have a, a Sikh army that I'm looking forward to putting down on the table with some new units, uh, and yeah, I'm just yeah very excited about that book coming up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the things that you've mentioned already is your um, Autosahariana mm. list. I, I, I can't actually remember if I if I said it in the last episode, but uh, there is a force listing for that in the book. You're my uh, hero. And we are produce... <laughs> just quietly. <laughs> uh, just between us. Yes. Uh, and then we're also producing um, more variants off the AS42, uh, so you'll be able to get the breeder on there and uh, nice. um, up, upgunned versions. Um, Derek, who produces a lot of our vehicles uh, in the studio, has, already has those on his desk, so expect those before too long. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, now I need to consider, do I need more uh, uh, Sahariana trucks than five what kind of war gamer are you of course you need more <laughs> i say that with a grin and a twinkle in my eye of course i do <laughs> uh the, the other thing for bolt action is um plastic u.s infantry oh yes uh, now whilst we already have u.s infantry um it's a set that has outsold pretty much everything else we've done mm. um 
we think we could have done. We we think we've got better models in us, so we're taking this opportunity to update them. Uh, it'll be the same style of uniform, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the the sculpts will be far far better. Mm -hmm. um, better options. Uh, one of the things that people um, have said they really liked from our early sets is having the weapons as part of the arms mm. rather than separate arms and separate weapons, which you know, in our thought process originally was there allowed a hell of a lot of um, conversion opportunities and posing, mm. but in hindsight uh, was probably a little bit too fiddly. So we're starting to redress that. We did it with the um, the German Grenadiers, which uh, yeah, was the first one that we wanted to revise, and uh, we're doing it with the US Infantry, which if I remember right, are going to be out in the June-July time. Fantastic. So they're they're already uh, away at tooling, being um, lashed into a large metal mold. Uh, so you know you'll have your all, all the the stuff you'd expect on there: uh, garands, one carbines, bazooka. Um, so that that should uh, that should go down very very well with American players. Now I I heard a rumor um, on from a different warlord uh, representative uh, on a different podcast that. This kit is like the kit you were just describing with the Germans in great coats. It's forward and backward compatible within the war, as in you can run it as early, quote unquote, early war, because Americans sort of came in the war late. Um, but you can use it Did to they? represent. <laughs> Don't get me. Do not get me started, Mr. Sawyer. We could do this all day. Um, <laughs> My my Scottish wife loves to tell me that the Americans came in to finish, not to actually, you know, for the hard part. Anyway. Glory, boys. Oh. So uh, that said, so this kit is backward and forward compatible, changing the subject. <clears throat> um, it, not really. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. It's, uh, it's, it's good for, um, obviously, when you, you entered the war, finally. Okay. Um, so um, it's probably good until 1944 when the um, after um, the Normandy mm. uh, fighting, the the American army was trying to uh, rationalise uh, its uniforms and was going over to the the green mm. uniform and then twill. Um, so whilst this would be seen throughout the to the end of the war, yeah. uh, more more units would have been. Um, reissued with a new uniform mm. um probably round about the operation market garden period right but post market garden uh, and through battle of the bulge of course it's winter and that's where your yeah. beautiful winter metal americans come in and you do have some of those new uniforms in that range so i think yeah. it all comes out yeah. in the wash anyway yeah i mean obviously we, we've got the uh, the wall covered for for americans uh, across the board. I mean, we are just about to release. <laughs> funny you should mention it. Um, more for the winter, winter Americans. Fantastic. Um, we've got a, um, a set of winter American U.S. Airborne um, in the the, the classic um, uh, later uniform. Mm. But um, anybody who's seen uh, the Band of Brothers and the, the Bastone episode uh, and the, the Assault on Foy, that's what you'll be getting. Amazing. Yeah, I heard a lot of ears prick up when you said that last sentence. Uh, American Airborne but and Germans are those. Just, Sorry, go ahead. It's not, just, it's not just the British and Americans, uh, not the British and Americans, 
it's not just the Germans and the Americans mm. that are getting all the glory. Uh, we're also going to be starting with our winter British. So guys in leather jerkins, in great coats, um, uh, cap comforters, scarves, etc. So um, Matt Bickley, who, who sculpted a lot of the, um, the metal winter Germans, mm. uh, turning his hand to um, doing as a, a range of winter British too. Oh, that's fantastic, especially since, and you haven't mentioned it, but Warlord also does um, metal winter Soviet bits to add on to the existing plastics, um, gun crews and whatnot. So you guys really are covering the winter in a big way. Yeah, well, it's just British. We are British after all. (laughs) We like the cold weather. Exactly. Uh, No, it's, uh, as I said earlier, it's something that, you know, when we start a range, we, we really promise where possible to to carry on releasing for it. And, and in some cases, that's consistent. Sometimes it's fits and starts. But uh, across the board, um, when we get our teeth into something, um, we don't tend to let go. Mm. And the winter, the winter stuff is so uh, wonderfully evocative. Uh, again, whether it's in the, the, the freezing cold hills of, and mountains of Italy, the Eastern Front, um, there's so many areas that you can play. The, the obviously there's the bulge, um, where you know obviously apart from the Soviets, you can feel the um, the Germans, the British, and the Americans. Definitely. So yeah, lots and lots of stuff going on there, and lots more to come. Awesome, awesome. Now I did promise one last section here, and I'm going to let you pronounce this because I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> Help! Uh, what would that be, Brad? <laughs> Begins with an L. <laughs> Le- oh, the plastic land snakes. Thank you. Oh, I should have let you do it, really. No, you shouldn't have. Yeah, um, yeah we've uh, we we've released um, uh, a set of plastic um, pikemen already, um, but we, again with this whole covenant of we want to carry on going mm. uh, and not rest on our laurels. Uh, we've also produced another two plastic sets. So uh, coming out shortly, we've got uh, two sets of Doppelsoldner, um, which are soldiers on double pay. These are guys who volunteer for the nasty jobs. Mm. Um, so that'll be either in the front rank uh, or just in front of uh, the pipe blocks wielding, uh, halberds or two-handed swords, or uh, on the flanks as detached units um, with either crossbow or arquebus, oh. uh, early black powder weapons. Um, so those are the two sets. You, you'll, you'll have a set that um, can be fielded as either or uh, with arquebus or with the, the crossbow. You could field them as two smaller units or make one big unit of each. Um, and equally... Uh, the set we've got for um, the Zweihanders has two-handed swords and um, and halberds, so you can either mix them into your front ranks of your pipe blocks, have them as detached units for um, special uh, missions um, and duties, uh, or just mix them all together and uh, yeah, have at it as you will. So that, that, that's something that... Um, uh, we haven't mentioned a lot recently, so um, I think that's uh, pretty much exclusive for, for the podcast. Nice. Uh, and um, I think we're hoping to have um, some pre-release of those uh, at Salute 
in London on uh, April the 14th. Uh, they don't hold me to that because I think we're, we're still trying to cross the um, T's and dot the I's on whether we can get them in in time. Equally, uh, although they're not released until May, uh, we're hoping to have some of the, uh, the first boxes of the plastic winter Germans on our stand at Salute. So um, <laughs> if, if you're interested in those, get yourself to our stand too sweet because we are going to be selling out of those very fast. I'm doing the math on the uh, the plane ticket to the UK. Is it worth it? <laughs> mm. I think your earlier comments about us being the bad guys, I'm not sure we'd let you in anyway. Well, yeah, well, mm. uh, I'm married to a British citizen. Theoretically, that helps. Uh, oh, that's right. Send, send her over. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Honey, can you go? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure that would work, uh, but yeah, my <laughs> wife puts up with quite a lot with the hobby, but sending her to the UK to go to, uh, to pick me up a, a box of, uh, you know, plastic Germans may go just, that might be a bridge too far. Yeah. Oh, I like what you did there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, okay. Last episode, we talked, uh, we talked with Lee Avery, a local, local Melbourne, so Australian friend of mine, um, who was a British paratrooper player from way back. And we talked through a lot of what we liked about the new Market Garden book. Um, now, we did, as I said, have a lot of requests for non-bolt action content. And one of the big games that's been all over Warlord's website, of course, is Blood Red Sky. Um, and people really interested in this new World War II dogfighting game. Um, not just individual planes going after one another. We're talking masked fighter dogfighting, the scrum, the, 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 the chaos of it. Um, and I think that the new Blood Red Skies game reflects that. And you can actually really get down and dirty with it. Um, and so for the next section of this podcast, uh, we are actually going to speak with the author, the one, the only Andy Chambers, one of the great godfathers of wargaming as we know it. Um, now, before we get to that, do you want to say anything about um, the release of Blood Red Skies, Paul? Because I know you guys have been really excited about it and the stuff looks great. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll leave uh, a lot of the, the juicy stuff for Andy. Um, we've we've been told that the uh, the boat with the, the aircraft carriers we've been calling it mm. um is pretty much uh, landed on our shores mm. um and and we're we're putting everything behind getting it um out to everybody who's pre-ordered as fast as humanly possible um but that would just be the first wave um we're we're already planning uh, more plastic sets for oh, nice. all um, of the factions, in, in, including some of the new, some other nations that haven't been covered, um, I'll, I'll leave the details of that uh, for another time. Mm. But uh, we we are uh, not resting on our laurels with Blood Red Skies, and we've got big plans for for, for many more um, products, um, not only for fighters, but introducing some of the heavier stuff as well. Uh, and yeah, we've been talking with with Andy about uh, a variety of other um, ways we can take it. But I'll leave all of that stuff to Mr. Chambers. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think it, I think that is about our time today. Um, is there anything you would like to say to the good people, sir? Uh, happy gaming more than anything else. Um, I won't take up many more of your time, but um, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll talk again next month. 
That's right. Um, now, I do have to thank all of the people who gave us wonderful feedback about the first episode. Um, hopefully, we've uh, accomplished what just about everyone wanted. Um, if you would like to give us feedback uh, about this podcast, be this episode, the first one, or future episodes, um, you can find me personally on Facebook through my Hobby po- Progress blog, uh, which is the Land O, not of, O Misfit Toys Um with a little asterisk then, or dash, then home of the cast dice podcast. Um, that's often difficult to find. So if you just type in cast dice, C-A-S-T space D-I-C-E, uh, you will find my page. Um, just message there. My name is Brad. Uh, I would love to hear from you, uh, whether you like the podcast or you have um, some something you'd like us to change. Um, we've done what we can to clean up uh, various sound quality issues. Um, there is, having already recorded the segment with Andy, there is unfortunately a 0.2 second Skype lag, um, which makes a little bit of the question answer a little awkward, but hopefully... Um, just to share a little behind baseball with you, I think we edited out most of that. Um, so please keep that in mind. Um, we do endeavor to have the highest quality sound and the very best uh, conversations for you listeners. Um, but if there's a game you'd like us to talk about, uh, please come talk to us. Now, one of the things that we did get a lot of feedback on that we haven't talked about today at all is Gates of Antares, but that's what episode three is for. So stay tuned, buckle up. Um, there'll be lots of great content um, coming in the future. And Paul and I are just, I mean, the number of emails that we send back and forth is fairly staggering. Um, there's just a ton of great content coming your way, guys. So thank you again for listening. We know there are a lot of great podcasts for you to listen to out there. Uh, and we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for listening. And without further ado, the one, the only, Andy Chambers. And we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are at all familiar with the history of wargaming as we know it in the last 20 to 30 years, you will know our next guest. Um, He helped develop some of the most iconic rule sets that we all played growing up, or at least I did, and I know most of you did as well. And in recent years, we would know his work from all of the great stuff he's been doing with Warlord Games. Now, please help me welcome one of the true greats of Wargaming, one of the godfathers of gaming himself, Andy Chambers. Welcome to the Warlord cast. Yeah, I suppose context is a good thing here, isn't it? Um, I started working at Games Workshop really early on, like 1990 is is when I was officially employed there uh, in the studio. That is, I actually worked in mail order before that. Um, and I participated in development of Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader after the initial book had come out, mm. uh, but primarily turning that into second edition 40K, as we call it, That's which right. is a bit of a watermark. But um, also, you know, Space Marine, Titan Legions, as it later became, mm-hmm. Necromunda, Gorkamorka, down the years, and lots of other tabletop games as well. So, um, yeah, and I'm still doing it yeah, somewhat remarkably say. 30 years later, nearly 30 years later. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I mean, you're just naming basically my childhood as you were going through those games because I picked up Rogue Trader 
um, way back when and then immediately started w- reading White Dwarf. And you were in those White Dwarfs that I started reading from pretty much the very first issue I read and then went all the way through. And as you were going through, um, especially with second edition and all of these games that have come since then, uh, basically, yeah. You were in all of it, and you had these great presence. <laughs> yeah, but you had the you had the presence in all the pictures. Uh, you mug like a photo, like no one else, sir. Uh, so I've been informed. So I've been informed. These days, I just have to rely on my godlike voice from a distance, across the <laughs> other side of the planet, to reach out to you. But then you had my whiskers. It's true. There you go. There you go. Well, sir, let's let's talk about what you've been up to recently. Um, you now you don't directly work for Warlord. You are sort of a, a consultant who comes in to write really cool rule sets. Is that basically how I understand your role? Is yeah, I'm a, a, a sort of freewheeling, you know, freelancing, piratical sort of individual these days. So um, I do contracts for for Warlord on occasion. I also Actually, you remember Thomas Pruning from, oh, yeah. from back in the day workshop as well? I worked with him uh, for his Finnish company called Reforged uh, as well, uh, and I do other independent contracting work as well. But I, I do still have a, a deep love for doing tabletop games, which is why I, I keep doing work for Warlord, because they, they very much, yeah, they date back, shall we say, a lot of the guys there are from back in the day when I was at Games Workshop as well. So we have, we have a very common view of, like, tabletop games are cool. We like tabletop games. We like toy soldiers. Definitely. So I, I can often find a good audience there for my slightly wacky ideas. Nice. Well, if for, if you are a, a, a Warlord fanboy like myself, and if you happen to play Bolt Action, you will, of course, know Andy from, you wrote the Soviet book, The Armies That's of the right. Soviet oh. Union. That's right. Yep, yep. That and, mine. and you wrote the Ostfront book. Yes, I did. Yes, I did that one as well. And I also did, slightly breaking the mold of doing Eastern Front all the time, uh, I did Empires in Flames as well. That's the right. Pacific War uh, Battle Supplement. That's right. Which, which I, was great. That was a real education for me, actually, doing that book. It was very good. Well, that army of that, sorry, that book includes, of course, my favorite army list, The Armies of China. Um, which I was very glad to see that you put in there. And I was also very glad to see um, Marine Raiders and all sorts of other awesome units that just really bulked out the Pacific Theater because up until the P&G book, um, Bolt Action was very heavily, you know, European theater, as you say, or desert theater uh, focused. And just to be able to add to the existing units that were in the armies of Great Britain, the armies of the United States, and the armies of Japan. It was just fantastic to suddenly get those forces, A, bulked out with new selectors, but also great new units. So hats off to you, sir. Thank you. Um, in, in fairness, I should point out, I didn't write the Chinese army list that was in the Empires and Flames. There's another chap, I can't remember his name yet. Uh, actually put together the army list. I kind of just formatted it and put it into that chunk of the book. Yay, we have an army list. That's right. So um, credit where credit's due. This is true. Shelf and find his name there. P. Beckus was his name. Paul. Paul Beckus. There you go. Thank you. No worries. Uh, I am a, as I said, a big fan of that list. But um, just that book in general is one of my faves. So uh, it's always. I'm just very excited that I, I was able to get you on this evening to talk about your next big warlord 
project. Um, now, if you've been looking at the Warlord website at all in the last six months, you would have seen a lot of discussion and a lot of excitement about the new game that's coming out. Um, now, of course, this is a new universe or new world for Warlord. It's still within World War II, but instead of being land-based battles, we're now taking to the skies. And we have Blood Red Skies, which is sort of a dogfighting game for World War II. Um, now, can you, now, way back when, when you were talking to us um, on a different podcast about writing the Osfront book, uh, you mentioned writing these rules, or at least you were still <laughs> figuring them out. So I know they've been a long time in the making, and you've spent a long time on them. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Because clearly it's taken a long time. Yeah, development. Um, yeah, the, the oldest documents I got for Blood Red Skies, which wasn't called that back then, obviously. Uh, Dave, that's 2010. Yes. Um, which is when I was in Seattle at the time, and I remember clearly starting out development on Blood Red Skies. And nearly everything I do, I'll be honest, I am a very mercenary soul. Mm. And uh, usually I, I, I write rules for money. Mm. People say, we want a game about X. And I go, sure, I can do that for you. And I write a game for them. Mm-hmm. Blood Red Skies is an exception to this because it's one that I actually wrote for myself. And it was based around, um, we were there in this Gritty Spoon Diner in Seattle called Beth's. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they do a, a mean cooked breakfast there. And I was there with a designer friend of mine, Ryan Miller. Lovely chap, hmm. and we were just talking about stuff, and he, he sort of like he, he floated the question about like if you could make a game for yourself, what game would you make? You know, what kind of rules would you make for it? I was like, well, you, you know, I've, I've never really thought hard about that because it's it's not something I generally do. Hmm. And I'd had an idea floating around ever since Battlefleet Gothic about how to do like three dimensional combat by just splitting things into three layers on the principle that, like, that's all you really care about. Do you care about, you know, are they up, down, or in the middle? Right. Now, subsequent to that, um, when I first left Games Workshop, I started um, playing online games rather um, obsessively, shall we say. And I spent a year flying in the virtual Luftwaffe in Western Europe, 1940, uh, in a game called World War II Online. And that was kind of like a simulator. You had to learn to fly, basically, to fight. And in the process of that, I came to understand that flying is actually really, really, really different. Uh, it's not dogfighting. It's not like World War One, like you think it is. There's a whole energy management. It's like as different to land, com- land combat as like submarine combat is. So these two ideas kind of collided in my skull about how to put together a, a simple uh, altitude system and try and do air combat a bit more like how I'd experienced it um, flying around by my virtual seat of my pants. Right, and I put it together, and that was the, the basis of what became Blood Red Skies. I just called it Fighter Combat back then. And one of the core things I wanted to make work for it was every um, fighter's aircraft game that I played tended to revolve around having a, a few models on each side, maybe just one, and you kind of pre-plot your movement and try and predict where the opposing plane is going to go. And that isn't kind of what I'd experienced flying around. That isn't really the way it works. It's it's not some puzzle that you have to solve. You can see which way the guys go flying at any particular time. You can see what maneuvers he's making. Occasionally, you can get fooled. It's true, but most of the time, that's not what it's about. It's it's far more about 
do you commit yourself? And when you start reading books about the period, reading you know, biographies of aces and things like that, you get a very clear picture of how fighter combat in particular really works, about how it is um, all about picking your moment, shall we say, uh, and to a certain extent getting lucky as well. I tried to build these in. But the biggest thing was to have a game where you could play with lots of fighters on each side, not just one or two each, but, you know, half a dozen, a dozen, mm. 20, 30 kind of numbers, because that's what I was reading about. That's what World War II big fighter combats were like. It wasn't like one-on-one or two-on-two. There were 30 or 40 flight planes on each side hurtling around in the sky. Right. And I wanted to try and recreate that as something a bit new, a different take on things. Now, that sounds like quite the task because, I mean, being able to manage, you know, a unit or two. Uh, I mean, if we think about bolt action, you often have 10 to 15 units. Maybe you're moving around the board and it's very it's not very quick. It's very it's strategic. It's tactical. You're moving things around. Um, occasionally you have some fast units. But what you're describing is, you know, between 10 and 40 planes that are hurtling through the skies and intertwining <laughs> with one another and moving up and down in elevation. Now, that is not a simple task. No, it's not. No, it's not. So, I'll grant you this, the game is to a certain extent abstracted uh, in comparison to those sort of games where you have a pre-plot of movement and, ooh, what's my turn rate and things like that. Um, because it's aimed at mass combat. You hear on something interesting there, which is, yeah, I reckon that a game you want probably a dozen also individually moving units when it starts to become a, a, a highly complex tactical game. Mm. You know, you can get away with less than that, depending on the complexity of the individual units. But for this sort of thing, yeah, you, you want uh, lots of things moving around and shooting. The, the dynamics of air combat in Blood Red Skies are, are summed up very, very simply with those three uh, altitude levels that I was talking about earlier, except they don't really represent entirely altitude levels. They're kind of states of energy, which if you get into reading about how planes fly is what it's all about. It's about your, your energy and your wing loading and things like that. But in essence, we may as well call them altitudes. Mm. Um, the top one, what we call advantaged. Middle one, you call neutral. Bottom one, you call disadvantaged. Now, one of the tricks about Blood Red Skies, for example, is you can twist and turn about in the sky all you like. Being shot at, you're only going to get shot down if you're already disadvantaged. So normally when you get a, a guns attack happens on somebody, if they're not already disadvantaged, all it will do is push them down uh, a flight level. Now, to make a guns attack, you have to have a higher advantage level than your target anyway. Okay. So if you come in, advantage, attack somebody who's neutral, you'll push them down to being disadvantaged again if you shoot them up, yeah? Mm -hmm. More to the point, if they're already disadvantaged, you'll shoot them down. And... That handles an awful lot of things about damage and so forth as well um, in, a, in a fairly simple sequence of events in the game. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. So if we're going to go forward from that point, though, um, how does, do you have 12 individual, if we're sticking with the idea of a dozen or so moving units on the board, um, I know you can go up mm. and down from there. Um, are, are there units or are the planes individual do you so planes are individual okay uh, planes are individuals um the other thing that again you read about in a fair combat and you get a very strong impression that the the plane maketh the man to a certain extent but really pilot maketh the plane 
or pilot maker the ace more than anything else mm. so the pilots are very important their, their individual skill levels counts for a lot um so your basic unit on the battlefield is yeah one fighter with a guy in it you might have a you know a multi-crew plane or something like that but planes operate individually is the fundamentals of it now in terms of units you are like at the start of a scenario you're deployed typically in elements typically pairs mm. um so you, you'll put guys out together in a formation at the start of a scenario whether you stick with that afterward after the initial contact or not is up to you really um there are definite disadvantages to not having someone watching your tail so we, we do have like a wingman rule uh, nice. to help protect you but if you get tailed you go straight down to being disadvantaged so there's like an encouragement within the game rule game rules to make sure you have a wingman covering your back it's not a rule that we impose where they have to move together you know and they must move in the same direction stay within six inches each, each other blah 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 it's down to you whether you want to stick with stick together whether you can stick together in the midst of a fight or not and again that kind of reflects the reality of the situation where like that was the plan certainly but a lot of guys tend to lose their wingman somewhere along the somewhere along the lines yeah, in the middle of the battle yeah absolutely i just thinking back to all the things i've read about fighter pilots in world war ii the wingman is always important but it is as you say if you lose your wingman then you're on your own and that definitely puts you in a disadvantage especially in the situations where you're facing someone who does have a wingman um and mm. as you say and if you can get those multiple hits in the the um, just abstracting from what you've been saying that's how you take planes down so it sounds like having multiple planes um, would really yeah. behoove you in you know a, a situation where two people are maybe shooting at someone else versus the one shooting at the two it very much rewards uh, ganging up, you know, in an unseemly, non-Red Baron fashion. You gang up on people and try and shoot the shit out of them. Um, and you also try and cover each other's tails because there's guys roving around looking to get the jump on you as soon as they think you're backstern. It's that kind of a game, certainly. Um, so, yeah, rather than having hard rules in there that enforce things like formations, it's something where uh, the game itself just a encourages you to adopt them really uh, which i think is always the ideal way of doing things nice so how does being an ace give you an advantage over you know because in world war ii one of the things we read about all the time especially in air combat is you know there being a few really experienced pilots but there being a lot more people who have been trained on the fly being thrown in a plane and thrown into the sky um to you know try and stop the onslaught of enemy fighters or bombers um how does the game sort of accommodate for that well i mentioned pilots are important and every pilot every plane has a skill level um and to give you a kind of an insight into that planes mm. are rated basically just on three stats uh, at their core they have a speed they have an agility rating and they have a firepower rating mm. and agility and firepower can be like one two or three each a pilot skill rating adds on directly to either agility or firepower, depending on what test they're making at the time. Okay. And pilot skills run between like two for somebody who's inexperienced up to five for an ace or six for a full ace, a full main ace. So that makes a really big difference in the game. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a classic spit, you know, early Spitfire example, you know, their firepower one 
because they've only got rifle caliber machine guns. They've got lots of them, but it's only rifle caliber machine guns. Right. So that means you're rolling one dice for their firepower. But when you make the attack, you add your pilot skill as well. So an average pilot is pilot skill three. So you're getting one for the plane and three for the man in that situation when it comes to rolling the dice. Obviously, later planes go up more in firepower, so it becomes less of a key feature about it all. But then they go down in agility at the same time as well. So when it comes to dodging a shot, again, you're adding your pilot skill plus your agility in this case. So agility three for an early spitfire. <clears throat> so an average guy is rolling six dice. He's like three for the plane, three for the man. Nice. Okay, that, that starts to make a lot more sense in my head on how the game works. Fantastic. Oh, nice. All right. Um, so one of the things I really like about this game is that it's not one particular battle. I know that a lot of people were really keenly looking forward to playing the battle, you know, the air battle above Den- Dunkirk, for example, um, given mm-hmm. the Hollywood film and that it's fresh in people's minds. But I love that you've included fighters for across different theaters across the war. Um was that something that you originally intended? Did you write it for maybe one battle in particular, or did you want something from day dot that sort no, of... No, I, I, I'm long, long, too many years of experience of doing tabletop games. I tend to write systems right. um, that are suitable for the game I'm trying to play rather than trying to portray a specific battle. Uh, it's more about trying to get you know the, the science of it um, and the flavor of it into a game for me. So it was always interesting that it was a system that was intended to cover just like World War II air combat, no matter the theater. Uh, I'll grant you, for a long time, I didn't think about the Russian front particularly, because it is a bit of a different aspect um, on that side of things, a lot more low level mm-hmm. over there. So I was primarily concentrated on the, the Pacific theater and uh, Northwest Europe, mm-hmm. uh, initially in terms of stats and so on. But... Once you work out like a, a formula for doing these things, it's irresistible to go through and stat up lots of other things. So I've got big long lists of lots and lots of different aircraft for all the different theatres and so on. And the core principles apply, and that was one of the interesting things about it, was you get this kind of inversion. Uh, if you look at it early war, like Battle of Britain, mm-hmm. Dunkirk as well, uh, Spitfires have the advantage that they, they keep their energy in turns well. Mm. So they can enter a turning battle with Messerschmitt 109s, their, their opponents at the time. They were good energy fighters. They dive and climb very well. Mm. And we're not talking about absolutes here. I should underline at this point. It's not like a Messerschmitt 109 couldn't turn with a Spitfire or a Spitfire couldn't climb or die. Right. But all things being equal from the same energy levels, etc., etc., they had slight advantages in these departments. So that's what they played to. Definitely. because. You're up there hurtling around in your 300 mile per hour. I've got eight guns under each, eight machine guns under my wings, aluminium and steel death machine. Mm-hmm. You take every advantage you can find. <clears throat> Absolutely. You go over to the Pacific and you actually get the inverse of that. Uh, you've got the Japanese planes there, the Zeros, their primary fighter at the time. Very light and agile, very good in the turn. Not so hot on the climb and dive as the American planes because they're heavier and they tend to have bigger engines in them. Mm. They can dive and climb better, but they can't turn for ship, the, the zeros, and they get absolutely annihilated if they try to. So in different sides of the world, you've actually got the axis has a different role mm. in terms of the, like, the mechanics of the game. 
who can turn well, who can climb and dive well. And that in itself was really interesting. Then you get the other aspect of it. As you go through the war, speeds go up, agility goes down, and firepower goes up. So in terms of stats, you can see this all a definite curve happening about how the planes develop later in the war. And again, it's not an absolute. It's not like you can't take an early war plane and fight against a later war plane. It's almost such a, a different uh, philosophy about how to fight. Okay, well, that was one of my next questions, was how the game worked as far as... I know that people are going to want to play historical battles where you see, you know, planes from the same era playing the same era. But is it possible for people to get a little ahistorical if they want to play some fun what-if oh, games? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a game where you can throw in ahistorical opponents against each other because it's a fairly simple system, I'd say. Uh, the agility and firepower ratings are one, two, or three at the end of the day. So you're either sort of like small, medium, or large in each department. And beyond that, it's just speed, which does make a big difference in the game, I'll grant you, because it ultimately speed gives you your turn sequencing. Because mm-hmm. faster planes go first. Well, actually, more skilled planes go first, but then faster planes come after that. <clears throat> um, the net upshot, though, is that yeah, you can absolutely fight later warplanes against early warplanes, and it'll be a fight, certainly, but it wouldn't be such a swinging thing. It's not like taking, oh, I don't know, Mark I Matildas against Tiger Tanks or something like that. It's right. not a marked difference like that, because it is about speed and agility and firepower rather than absolutes of armor penetration and armor thickness. What I really like, though, then, is that it's it's balanced. Um, you can play, and it does work. And it isn't like you're going to feel disadvantaged if you want to take your favorite early war plane and your best mate wants to take your their favorite late war plane. And one person wants to play, I don't know, Japanese, and the other person wants to play Germans. You can do it. Yes. Yes, it will absolutely work on that level. And, you know, and obviously we've been working hard to try and make sure that the historical side of things is covered as well. Mm. One of the nice things that we had uh, about the development of Blood Red Skies was it was originally wasn't done to be like a card based game at all. But um, latterly, I made some uh, changes to it, started introducing cards into the system. And that's allowed me to put in um, two different sorts of cards. The basic cards, you get a trait cards for the different aircraft. Mm-hmm. So... Those reflect things that I was talking about, energy management in the different planes. So, for example, like that early Spitfire that turns well, or that Zero that turns well, uh, has a trait card called the Tight Turn card, which means that instead of just turning at the end of your movement, you can turn at any point in your movement. A small but very important feature for you. Um, whereas the like the, the heavier American planes, the the uh, Messerschmitt 109, they they get great great climb and great dive cards, which have more marginal advantages than being able to turn at any point in your movement. But they they kind of stack up, mm. as it were, between great dive and great climb. So those, those are all trait cards that are associated with aircraft, and you have a little deck of those according to how many planes you've got with those traits. Mm-hmm. Having those has let me also put in some interesting cards like theatre cards and doctrine cards. Because, again, you'll see different theatres obviously have a a big effect on what the shape of the battlefield is like Mm. up there in the air war. Like, is it inexperienced pilots who've been thrown in with no training to try and stop the onslaught? Or are they actually experienced veterans who've been flying since the Spanish Civil War? Right. Um, those are things which you don't necessarily want to just 
uh, have in terms of the pilot skill levels because there's also things like just tricks they'd learn. You found this very much in the uh, Battle of Britain, for example. The German pilots are coming in with just better formations that they'd figured out because they'd already been fighting for a while. They went to the like finger four formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas at the start of the Battle of Britain, the RF was still flying around in uh, three-plane VIX, convinced that that was the way to do it. And it really, really wasn't. And yeah. eventually they learned this over the course of the Battle of Britain. But that sort of shift over in doctrine happens part way through. Um, so we've got doctrine cars to sort of to help to represent things like that. Little little changes in the way that the different air forces fight each other, circumstantial changes to do with theatre, like your radar support in the Battle of Britain is another classic example. Mm-hmm. That's a card, it's a theatre card which helps out. Having home advantage, big thing when it comes to fighting aerial battles about oh, yeah. whether the guys that bail out come home or get captured and turn as prisoners of war. Again, we can use that uh, theatre card to represent that uh, in these aerial battles. So it's, that's added a lot of sort of dimensionality onto uh, the theatre and what part of the war you're actually fighting in, in terms of how the different air forces are fighting. Definitely. Well, one of the things that I've really liked from what I've read about the game is how you manage, because you talk about um, planes being advantaged, disadvantaged, and sort of being in between um and mm. the actual stands that the planes are mounted on the plane models um they tilt right so you're able yes. to quickly see just at a glance what your what a plane is doing either what your planes you know status they're in or the people you're shooting at which is really great if you're looking as a player you don't have to go looking at people's cards to see how many damage they have or whatever else it's just that easy visual which makes for easy gameplay well, well, when we were um, playing early on with uh, Ryan back in Seattle, mm-hmm. we used um, for the mock-ups for it for, for just running around. Axis and Allies used to do um, like a collectible miniatures game. That's right. And as rare as they had like fighter planes in them, uh, which came on these little flexible bases for no apparent reason whatsoever. And we started using those tilt bases to um, to actually play the game we were playing because we, we found, as you say, it was really advantageous to see mm. just at a glance without having to look at markers or on people's cards or something like that, uh, what status was for different aircraft. And of course, you know, the, we've all seen the the car aerial stands and mm-hmm. that sort of high technology. You know, that's never going to work really for too many planes. But something where you can just literally flip it backwards to show its advantage forward to show its disadvantage, in the middle to show its neutral, was really handy. So in, in many ways, over the last eight years, the quest has been to try and find the technology to actually produce something like that <laughs> for a miniatures game and reproduce it in, in a nicer piece of engineering. Wolves done me proud on that. And the one that did a wonderful base of Blood Red Skies, and it really, really does help. Yeah, and the planes look sensational on them as well. I mean, just the whole package, looking at the board laid out is just, it's a treat just to see a game laid out. Um, as a game designer, you got to love that. Yeah, terrific job on the production on it. Because, say, you, you come together, you, you lash together some rules that you think work well, you play with them, you adjust them and so forth. Good, cool game going on here. It's always after that point about the presentation of the game uh, and the, the love and the care that goes into making it look cool because you know it's cool by this point right i mean what could be cool man 300 mile an hour death machines eight machine guns each side or cannons the subject matter is cool you think the rules are cool but after that it comes down to making it look good yeah so that it helps sell people on the idea of like this is an exciting part of the, the 
wall that you want to try out. Mm-hmm. Planes are good things to collect. They look great, as they do, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And wall has really done me proud on that. And for many years, I mean, I, I touted around. And obviously, I was talking to you about it when we were talking about us from years ago. That's right. And I kind of toyed with the idea of doing a Kickstarter and all this sort of stuff. But really, my, my favorite solution was to get Warlord to do it because um, they're gentlemen of the tabletop industry that I know and love, and they understand how to make a good tabletop war game. That they do. And one of the other things, as you say, when you're making things look good, is the graphic design that they've put into the cards themselves, um, into the books. Mm-hmm. They've made everything sort of look, uh, it, it's, what is it, retro, circa 1940s-esque <laughs> aesthetic that yes. is just fantastic and certain mission cards look like newspapers um can you talk more about that because i've i haven't actually seen the box open in my person but i've seen a lot of stuff online and it looks great uh, it, it is really gorgeous um yes we, we took a lot of inspiration obviously from um publication and propaganda uh, from the period from world war ii itself and it has a very distinctive look and style to it Definitely. When you look at anything from the war, uh, particularly this kind of like you know block printed propaganda posters and stuff, and like you say, newspaper pictures and so on. So it was really sort of taking those elements and porting them across, uh, and making them enhance the feel of the whole thing uh, and make it feel sort of like right for the period. Uh, and yeah, the cards in particular really turned out well. Those, those little stark graphics on the back are wonderful. Yeah, they look so good. So can you talk to us about, um, I, I heard you interviewed once, um, and I've heard a few other people interviewed about how games, game designers work. So I guess my question is, having asked you this question a couple of years ago, um, in, I know in Bolt Action you always play the Russians. Um, my question is, in Blood Red Skies, are you still playing the Russians? Or is it one of those things that... You always look at what the game designer plays. Is that the is that the best one? Um, what are we going here? One of the nice things about Blood Red Skies, um, one of the things that I thought was appealing about the idea of collecting uh, air forces and planes is it's a low commitment. It's a bit like having you know a small team like a Blood Bowl team or something like that because it's mm. not very many miniatures, which means it's easy to collect for lots of different forces That's so right. no i don't just play one side i tend to, if anything i tend to play the germans mm. more than anything but I, I play whatever's required at the time i played all the different sides at one point or another and uh, so i don't really have a odds on favor um the soviet union aircraft have been quite late in the process say mm. So I'm kind of less familiar with them. And if I'm entirely honest, they do kind of rely on lemming tactics to a certain extent. Ah. So uh, I've not played an awful lot with those. So you don't necessarily have one particular favorite. Sounds like Germans maybe from your online gaming days are a fave. Um... Kind of, yeah, yeah. Those days in the virtual Luftwaffe from the seat of a, a BF-109, hard to forget. So That's that cool. is kind of playing the bad guys, monstering the dungeon though. So a certain extent. Hey, sometimes you just gotta let, you know, let the Wookiee win and, or not even let the <laughs> Wookiee win, but you gotta you gotta play the bad guys so someone can play the good guys. Somebody has to. That's right. Well, I guess that that comes up with the next question. So the core game comes up with six fighters on a side. And um yep. there are five expansions to the game right out of the gate. Um and so there is Clearly, there are the um, American. Well, I'll let you. What are the five boxes, and how how does that tie into future plans for the game? 
Okay, Let, let's run them down. Um, so the, the the base game, as mm-hmm. you rightly say, has got six fighters aside. It's got six Spitfires versus six BF-109s. Uh, and then there's a, a box set of six Spitfires, a box set of 109s as well. But then on top of that, so that's your, I should say, that's your Brits and your Germans. Because I'm assuming people know what these planes are. Mm-hmm. For the Japanese, we've then got a box set of six uh, Zeros. For the Americans, slightly controversially, we've got a box set of six P-51 Mustangs. Mm. And then for the Russians, we've got a box of six Yaks. Wonderful name, Yak. Yeah, it's a great name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I say the the controversial choice of the P-51 Mustang for the Americans, because that's quite a late war plane. It's a lot later than the others. Uh, most of those are all kind of like mm, 40s, 40, 41 planes, mm-hmm. whereas the Mustang doesn't come in really until 43, 44. Uh, so it kind of goes back to that example we were talking about earlier on of can you fight early war planes against later war planes? Yes, you can, being the short answer. The Mustang, uh, the Mustang is set up to fight specifically against the Mark of Zero mm-hmm. that we've started up, which is a slightly later war zero, because these planes... One of the things you have to appreciate about it is they changed throughout the war. They were mm. continually upgraded with new engines, uh, new weapons, sometimes entirely new configurations of their aerodynamics as well. So what you have as a, a sort of like a Spitfire Mark One at the start of the war is very different to a Spitfire Mark Nine by the time you get to 1945, 44. I think mean, it's been Spitfire Mark Nine. Anyway. So there's a lot of diversity just within those specific marks of planes. It's like the Yaks run through uh, mark, you know, the Yak-1, the Yak-7, then the Mark, uh, the Yak-3, and then the Yak-9. And yes, it is that order. And yes, it drives me mad when I try and think about it. <laughs> well, it does make sense. I mean, if we, for those of us who have been digging around in uh, bolt action in World War II for quite a while, you know, I guess we're kind of used to looking at um, obscure letters and number combinations to describe <laughs> the tanks and trucks and the vehicles, the armored cars that we love, um, and the artillery pieces and all that. So um, for me, this is like a whole new, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, alphabet um, to learn. And you just go, ooh, mm-hmm. I know that. Ooh, I know. Th- that looks familiar. What is that? And so um, it's just learning, again, that every vehicle had a million variants because you know, they had to, as you say, they, um, the war necessitated the, the constant evolution of machines. Um, and with planes in particular, they just had to make do often with what they could get their hands on and get up in the air. So absolutely. And what the cutting edge of technology was doing. And I think it's really cool that you're not just giving us one plane or one version of the zero. And then we get quite a few. Um, I just think that's really exciting. Um, well, like I said, I think that was one of the kind of like, when I sat and thought about it, that was the remarkable thing was to realize that there was a very definite kind of development of technology in a different way. It's easy to see uh, it in tanks where, you know, tanks get bigger, armor gets thicker, guns get bigger. Okay. But with aircraft, it's a lot more subtle because it has to do with the kind of engines put in them that makes the biggest difference to them above all. Mm. Uh, And those were continually developed throughout the war. Of course, the, uh, and each side really came down on settling to 
a really good airframe and a really good engine. Now, America is a bit of a what, a bit of a wild card in all this because they make so many planes over the course of the war in numbers. Uh, you look at something like Brits, and it's like, well, we'll produce lots of Spitfires. Then they work, uh, yeah. and there's a few other planes. Granted, you know, this is not to do down the typhoons of this world and the Tempest and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the, the Americans literally go through like three or four different planes. We'll have Wildcats, we'll have B40s. No, we'll go to Thunderbolts. We'll go to Mustangs. We'll go to Lightnings. So they they have this this vast panoply of different planes. So they're a really interesting subject in and of their own right. Definitely. Well, I, I just looking at I, I googled American airplanes, which makes for bad radio. While you were talking, and was like, "Wow, you were right." There's a lot of them. Um, so, I yeah, clearly that made it a, a hard choice for you. Um, do you have plans to uh, bring out more different type of American planes later on? Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm getting getting away from the point. What oh, that's right. Was in the first place, those are the plastic sets that we do. So mm. all those planes are available in plastics, uh, and we do aces for each of those types of planes as well, which mm. get extra cards. And ace skill cards, which is something I didn't touch on earlier on when you asked me about aces either. As well as having great skill levels, aces always get also get their own cards. But we won't talk about that more now. Okay. In addition to those uh, plastic sets, we're going to do some more planes in plastic going forward. Uh, we're still settling on exactly what uh, the second wave of plastic says, but so far we know that we're definitely going to do a hurricane. Mm. Uh, we're definitely going to do a Fort Wolf 190. There's a very good chance we'll do a Corsair, which is an American plane that everybody's in love with, um, in that wave as well. And Japanese and so forth still to settle on. Uh, very good chance we'll do an Italian plane as well. Interesting, because mm. when we did a poll online, that was what most, most people wanted to see, was an Italian plane. So it's like, fair enough, that's, <laughs> Italians are coming. Um, but in addition to those, we're going to do metal and resin planes as well. We've also uh, come to a deal with Svezda, mm-hmm. it's a Russian uh, plastic manufacturer, who just so happened to make some one two hundred scale aircraft. Nice. Uh, specifically stuff like bombers and uh, transport aircraft is what they do, because they, they, they mainly do... Um, sort of ground combat type stuff so it tends to be stuff that revolves around the ground that they do more than the, the fighter planes and so on but that's good because that actually gives us a, a way of getting bombers into the game where they have to go and make them in plastic and if I'm honest they're the last things you'd make in plastic normally because you want more fighters first obviously yeah exactly um, but we've got resin, resin and metal planes that we can make as well at the moment I was just looking the other day um, yesterday when I was in Warlord and Paul was showing me a wildcat that they're doing which is an early sort of Pacific war plane for the Americans, mm-hmm. F-4. Yeah. Uh, and they were really reliant. I mean, Guadalcanal Canal was fought almost entirely using wildcats and things like this. So they had to fight a lot of them versus zeros in those early portions of the war. So it's great to actually have that being done in metal. Dead cute, it looks as well. Relatively tiny compared to the planes that come later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll keep adding to that. And we can be sort of fairly responsive to what people want as well because we're doing resin and metal as well as doing the plastic sets i mean that'll be your go-to place to get a chunk of you know six aircraft at a time of a particularly sort of like well-known mark but all the other stuff we can cover in between times as well so yes picking the planes is a tough one though and particularly once you get into oh right i'm going to pick this kind of plane you can then get into what mark of that particular kind of plane you want to do is it the one is it the two is it the five and all this sort of stuff 
Yeah, I imagine you want to stick with the common ones for the plastics because those those are the ones that people are going to sort of buy in bulk, and those would be the ones that you would expect to see in the sky. But I'm sure. Yeah, uh, it's kind of the most iconic. It's kind of the yeah. most iconic ones. It's the ones we have to do in plastic, and I so say that's why the the controversial Mustang decision because nailing down the most iconic American fighter. There's so many different um, candidates for it. We settled on the Mustang, Cadillac of the Skies, but you nice. can make good arguments for others as well. Well, I know that other airborne games often rely on just open dogfighting. Um, now, I know this game has missions, um, different missions with different objectives. And you were talking about bombers a minute ago. So with this game, the use of bombers and um, maybe some other types of civilian aircraft, that factors into the missions, right? That's how that works. Yeah, I, we're on early days with missions. I'll mm. be honest with you. The basic game has got missions that are suitable for the Battle of Britain in mm. particular. So they are, you know, there's like different varieties of dogfight mm-hmm. and so forth. But one of the key missions that's in there is the bomber escort mission. Right. And we've included card pieces in the base game um, for Dorniers or Blenheims, as the case may be. Nice double-sided things. So that you you, can, you have actually got something to play around. Obviously, better to pro- replace it with a model if you can. Because, yes, just trying to keep enemy fighters off your bombers is one of the primary tasks that fighters have to do. That's right. And likewise, you know, getting thrown in the bomber, it's your job. So um, they, they make uh, a great narrative story when you, you've got a flight of bombers just trying to get from one edge of the table to the other without getting shot down in the process and then slightly desperate escorts trying to fight off the opposing fighters along the way. Um, so that's in there in the core game, in the core rules and so on. It's something I want to build on more for the future mm-hmm. uh, in terms of scenarios in particular, and maybe some extra cards. For example, um, doing like uh, bombing Navy ships as a specific scenario, doing ground attack as a specific mm-hmm. scenario so that we can get these sort of like aerial interactions in their proper context against uh, a bigger backdrop of what's happening at sea or on the ground as well, which has then got obvious sort of like tie-ins to maybe uh, connecting across to your bolt-action game or your cruel seas game or what have you. Which sounds fantastic to me um, now as an avid bolt action player. Now, I you mentioned the card bombing tokens that are in the game. Um, there's also very large cloud templates that go down are those also part of the missions or is that something that just is sort of the natural um the quote-unquote terrain of the sky um i'm always keen to put some terrain on the table uh, mm. you know whether it's in space or in the sky or what have you i think you want a few features to fight around Agreed. or to at least influence things or not as the case may be so yeah the, the clouds are there to be a part of any particular game um, they've also got a flip side of barrage blooms, which are more specifically part of the bombers games and scenarios, but they're just there as a, as a terrain option primarily. And that's one of the interesting things about thinking about, uh, doing ground attacks and attacking naval targets as well is that again, that there's going to be a form of terrain, a very, very hard form of terrain directly below you as you get nice and low mm. and how to cover that in the game is going to be an interesting one as well. Hills it will suddenly start to become relevant when you get down low enough. Absolutely. And especially since um, a lot of those battlefields with with those hills might have uh, flak on them. And at that point, I imagine that will be... So that isn't covered in the base game, though? Um, Not in the base game. Right. No. 
Europe high enough that things like you know ground level flak isn't really a concern for you down there. Right. <clears throat> That's really only once you get below like a few thousand feet. Uh, barrage balloons, I say, is, is the closest you've got to it. I'm trying to remember now. I have got flak rules, and I can't remember. No, they're part of the ground attack scenario, and that's not in the basic game because we're still developing it. Mm. So, no, Something to look comes for- later. Something to look forward to. <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it. Or you can look at it as terrain that kills you is another way of looking at it, which most people don't enjoy. But there you go. Pilots <laughs> didn't enjoy flat either. You can ask George Preddy about that. Mm. <laughs> right on. I feel like there's a good story in there. Okay, George Preddy, uh, he's the ace we've done. Uh, for the Mustangs, mm-hmm. because he was. He was the highest scoring Mustang pilot uh, up in Northwest Europe in 1944 45. Uh, a remarkable fellow. One day they were going to be escorting a B 17 mission the next day, and the mission was scrubbed. So they all went out and they got drunk that night. And then in the morning, the mission was put back on again, and they had to go and fly escort for it anyway. And he did so with a huge hangover and managed to shoot down six enemy aircraft in all one mission while with a huge hangover. Unfortunately, he met his demise um, during the Battle of the Bulge while chasing a German plane. Uh, American AA units opened up on said plane and also hit him and shot him down and killed him. So, yeah, flack, not your friend. No, not at all. That that is not the the good story I was hoping for. Um, But, you know, (laughs) friendly fire. No, no, that's, believe me, friendly fire happens a lot. Um, as uh, yeah. anyone who rolls a one on an artillery barrage in bolt action, I tell you. <laughs> it's an ugly reality of war. That is right. That is right. Well, right on. Um, Andy, I feel like we're, um, we're coming close to our, the end of our time today. Um, is there anything, I mean, there are just so many questions I have about this game. Um, and I could talk to you about it all day long. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't covered that would be really great for warlord fans or just people who are interested in the game in hearing? Um, I, I think only really to say this is that that Blood Red Skies is is as you said it's a new theatre it's a new game that we're opening up it's going to be developing as we go and if there's particular things in there that you think we should be hitting first oh, let us know because you know we're we're developing it even as we speak mm-hmm. and looking forward to what planes we do next and you know what potential supplements or cards we do next for the game so we're very much in, uh, interested in growing it in communication with the community we we have a blood red skies facebook page mm-hmm. please come and see us there and uh look forward to seeing you all in the skies guys nice well ladies and gentlemen that that it could not be a nicer way to finish this evening um if you have any feedback for andy of course please go to the blood red skies page uh post there or message the page directly andy mm-hmm that's a good way of contacting you? Absolutely. Um, and you can also come and find my... I've got a page on Facebook, an author's page, for Andy, Andy Chambers. So if you wanted to message me directly, please do so. Always happy to help out. Excellent. And um, I would like to take a quick second to thank everyone who listened to episode one and now clearly to episode two of the official Warlord Games podcast. Um, We are still teething through a few Skype issues. Um, For example, when Andy and I were casting tonight, you may have noticed that there was a little bit of 
um, weird interact. That's because we had a, a 0.2 second lag for Skype, um, which makes for semi-awkward conversations sometimes. Um, while we are working through these teething problems, um, we are very keen for all of your feedback. Um, again, uh, this will be posted through the Warlord Games Facebook page. Um, they will. Uh, lots of people gave us great feedback about this podcast when it, the first episode was posted. Please go on, find the post sharing this particular episode, and leave your thoughts, be them positive, negative. Um, We are looking to improve. We are looking to uh, guide this podcast in a direction that you, the listener, would like. So let us know what you would like. And of course, if you would like to directly contact me, Old Man Morin, you can do so by finding, um, by typing cast dice, C-A-S-T dice, into your Facebook search algorithm, um, and a page will show up that is called The Land O Misfit Toys, the home of the Cast Dice podcast. Uh, You can message me directly there, and I will guaranteed reply every single time because that goes straight to me all the time. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, and we hope that you are having a great time playing Warlord games, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts, and we hope that you enjoy this in further episodes of this podcast. Thank you very much, and good night.